in Chapleau, Quebec. Um, that was the first, uh, yeah, um, the first residential school that took our family members away from our community, from our home. That was the voice of Lily Gull Sutherland speaking on her experience with Indian residential schools. She was speaking at a sharing circle in Quebec organized by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Uncovering the Real Canada. Today we will begin our social work policy series in which every episode will discuss different policy decisions focused on social development. In today's episode, we will be exploring the concept of Indigenous Reconciliation in Canada by analyzing the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. For the purpose of this podcast, I will be referring to the Commission as the TRC. Our goal is to uncover whether the TRC's conceptions of reconciliation are possible or even beneficial to Indigenous peoples in Canada. We will go over the theory of change, strategies, and areas of development included in the TRC. Before we begin our episode, I would like to acknowledge that this episode is being recorded on the traditional unceded territory of the Anishabe Algonquin Nation. So before we dive into the development strategies and analysis, I think it's important to give a brief introduction to the topic and issue we will be discussing today. So what is the problem? The mandate for the TRC explains that it was established to confront the issues of injustices and harms experienced by Indigenous people who were forced to attend Indian residential schools. Eisenberg explains that Indian residential schools were established in Canada in the late 19th century in order to assimilate Indigenous children into settler colonial society. These schools were designed and operated to achieve what was essentially a cultural genocide. They had high rates of child sexual and physical abuse, disease and death rates, coercive assimilation, loss of language, and cultural dislocation. All of these appalling violations have forged lasting negative impacts on Indigenous communities. In order to better understand the issues created by residential schools, I think it's useful to consider the different dimensions of community which they affected. Eversley characterized categorizes dimensions of community into three overarching concepts. Blood, defined by common ancestry or nationality. Place, defined by shared territory or space. And mind, defined by shared identities, values, and cultures. The goals of the residential schools disrupt all three of these elements. The concept of blood is disrupted by forcing Indigenous children to reject their Indigenous ancestry. The concept of place was impacted by forcibly removing Indigenous children from their homes. And the concept of mind was severely impacted by stripping Indigenous children of their cultures, identities, and values. Now, I'd like to give an overview of who is involved in this issue. The mandate for the TRC states that residential schools have left behind a legacy of injustice and mistrust between Indigenous and non-Indigenous peoples. The TRC involves all victims of the Indian Residential School, including First Nations, Inuit, and Métis former Indian Residential School students, their families, and communities. The mandate also calls upon those involved in the operation of Indigenous schools. This includes religious entities, 
former residential school employees, the government, and the people of Canada. So now that we have a basic understanding of the topic and issue, we can begin to dive into the development strategies employed by the TRC. Let's begin by considering the TRC's theory of change. As Professor Studer explains in Week 5, Video 3, Theories of Change, the theory of change is the tactic or model used to achieve social change. We will be discussing two main theories of change, conflict and consensus theories. Eversley characterizes the conflict model based on inherent conflict within groups in society and the desire of marginalized groups to abolish rather than develop the dominant groups. Many indigenous people have voiced the need for this conflict model of change. Dennis and Bailey explain that many indigenous leaders have called for more radical approaches to reconciliation, which will transform settler society rather than simply adjusting the status quo. In order to address the root causes of indigenous oppression in Canada, a current settler colonial system must be broken down. So now we turn to the question of whether the TRC follows this conflict model. The commission appears to follow a conflict model of development because it claims to follow a transnational justice framework. This framework was seen with the TRC in South Africa after the end of apartheid. However, many have critiqued the TRC for superficially claiming to follow this framework. For example, Hughes points out that the transnational justice frameworks usually occur against a backdrop of broad political and institutional transformation. In Canada, neither of these have really occurred with the TRC. Hughes therefore argues that the TRC poses no actual threat of change to the political system, and hence the TRC is seen as a continuation and extension of the unfair status quo colonial, colonial relations that currently exist in Canada. The second theory of change is the consensus model. This model is based on the belief that society can agree on what is right and wrong. Eversley explains that consensus theories of change visualize a developed community based on all of its parts fitting together. The TRC demonstrates elements of the consensus model and its very purpose of reconciliation. The Commission's mandate explains that it aims to educate the Canadian public and to provide recommendations to the government on Indigenous issues pertaining to the residential school system. The ultimate goal of the Commission is to create a stronger and healthier future for Canada collectively. The mandate implies that awareness leads to greater cohesiveness and consequently healing and societal strength. Moreover, reconciliation is projected as something which all Canadians can agree on, and this is emblematic of the consensus model. There is still an ongoing debate as to which model the TRC is and should be using. I'm not an expert and so I don't claim to have a definite answer, but after considering evidence from both sides of the debate, I ultimately think that the TRC is currently following a consensus model of change. The Commission seems like a good start because it acknowledges the horrible realities of Indigenous oppression in Canada, but I think it's still leg legitimate to question whether the Commission has created any real change to the colonial relations between the state and Indigenous people. In order to do this, the Commission must go beyond acknowledging problems to question and transform the underlying causes for oppression of Indigenous peoples in Canada, and these take root in colonialism. So depending on your views on the issue, you may question whether reconciliation does enough to subvert the status quo, or whether it simply preserves and justifies it. All right, 
So now let's move on to the actual development strategies employed by the commission. First, I would like to discuss vertical development strategies. These include top-down and bottom-up strategies. Aversley explains that top-down strategies tend to implement large-scale plans and changes with the hope that these changes will have a trickle-down effect and benefit individuals in need. Conversely, bottom-up strategies involve greater local autonomy and hence changes are driven by and implemented directly into communities. Bottom-up strategies are generally seen as more fair and effective for development. While doing my research, I found it particularly difficult to determine whether the TRC was top-down or bottom-up. The Commission demonstrates top-down features in its strongly judicial nature. For example, Hughes critiques the Commission for its insistence on a judicial chair and its lack of a broader professional profile. This law-heavy focus may render the Commission disconnected from local-level community needs and issues. For example, Hughes mentions that the Commission's staffing to date has not sufficiently resolved gaps in healthcare and psychological services experienced by Aboriginal communities. Dennis and Bailey cite Corntassel, who voices the need for more community-centered actions premised on reconnecting with land, culture, and community. In this way, the Commission lacks a strong bottom-up approach in which the needs of Indigenous communities are directly addressed. That being said, there are elements of the bottom-up approach present in the Commission as well. For example, the TRC explains that the Commission provides individuals with a, safe to, with a space to safely and openly share their experiences with the residential school system. These theories are then used to make recommendations to the government and educate the vast public. By investing time and money into helping the victims of the residential school system, the Commission aimed to achieve reconciliation throughout Canada. In this way, the Commission can also be seen attempting to use bottom-up approaches, starting with the individual and hoping to implement changes across Canada. All in all, analyzing the TRC in Canada has shown me how complex, reconcili- how complex development strategies truly are. It's not always easy to categorize development projects into these different strategies. I think one way to make this a little more simple is to consider the intention behind the development project and then evaluate how that intention was translated into practice. While the Commission may have intended to be more bottom-up, its law-heavy focus may have disrupted them from carrying out a bottom-up approach in reality. Now, to get a full understanding of the development strategies used by the TRC, I think it's important to consider the areas and levels in which the Commission operates. I'll be using Eversley's multi-level approach to analyze development projects to development to analyze the TRC. This multi-level approach de- analyzes development projects based on four main areas of development. These are first, community and social, second, economic, third, political and civic, and fourth, cultural and sustainable. This approach also considers four levels of development. These include the individual, interpersonal relations, the institutional level, and finally the ideological level. For the purpose of this podcast, I'll be focusing on the cultural and social areas. But to learn more about the multi-level approach, you can look at our weekly newsletter. In week four, video two, the multi-level approach, Professor Streeter explains that culture and social development involves concepts such as equality, knowledge, education, and social and ethical challenges. 
the TRC seems to focus mainly on the cultural and social area at the institutional level. This level of development mainly targets social movements and structures such as laws and the state as a whole. The institutional level encompasses the 440 recommendations made by the commission aimed at improving the living conditions of indigenous peoples in Canada. These recommendations called for structural changes such as transformation in narratives of citizenship, understandings of territory, and approaches to health and history. The commission also achieved cultural development at the institutional level by introducing indigenous cultures to pre-existing institutions. For example, the commission aimed to integrate indigenous knowledge systems, oral histories, laws, protocols, and connections to the land into the reconciliation process. The institution in this case was the concept and process of reconciliation, which were amended to account for indigenous cultures and beliefs. The commission can be critiqued for this heavy institutional focus and a lack of impact at the individual and interpersonal level. While individuals from indigenous populations may benefit from storytelling, many question how their stories will manifest into real changes in their lives. It seems that the commission has failed to translate institutional recommendations into concrete changes that can be felt at the interpersonal and individual level. Although the commission has made hundreds of recommendations, many non-Indigenous people still remain oblivious to Indigenous issues in Canada. So one can question what good was the commission anyway? All right, so now that we have a good grasp of the issue and development strategies of the TRC, I would like to dive into some analysis of the TRC. Throughout this podcast, I've raised several critiques and opposing perspectives regarding the commission. I would now like to, I would now like to analyze the commission with specific focus on power, justice, and cultural competence. So first, I think it's important to highlight that our conceptualization of justice differs depending on context and power. For example, as non-Indigenous people, we're in a position of power and we're less likely to experience the harmful legacies of colonialism faced by Indigenous people. These legacies include poorer health and socioeconomic conditions. As Nadon explains, it is important to understand how context shapes our experiences and beliefs. Due to a lack of firsthand experience with colonial legacies, one can be ignorant to these issues. As a result, their conception of justice may not encompass the anti-colonial and decolonial goals expressed by Indigenous people throughout Canada. In looking at the work of the TRC, it's therefore important to consider whether Indigenous conceptions of justice were prioritized. I think the TRC does a good job of acknowledging Indigenous conceptions of justice. For example, the mandate mentions values such as victim-centered service, flexibility, and just and respect. All of these values facilitate cultural competence by placing Indigenous experiences and beliefs at the center of the goals of the Commission. But it's important to note that even within Indigenous people, there is no one conception of justice. Rather than generalizing an overall Indigenous definition, it's important to understand that there's no one Indigenous experience. As a result, different Indigenous leaders have called for varying ideas of justice. Wab Kinyu, the Anishabe journalist, affirms the TRC's focus on reconciliation, defined as respect for both the similarities and differences between Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. Conversely, Indigenous scholars affiliated with the Indigenous Governance Program at the University of Victoria 
question the notion of reconciliation entirely. In their view, reconciliation entails acceptance of the current settler colonial system, while real justice can only be achieved through decolonization. And considering different indigenous conceptions of justice, it's clear that the TRC supports and aims for the less disruptive notion of reconciliation. While reconciliation while reconciliation may ameliorate the lives of indigenous people, it does not necessarily disturb current colonial structures and therefore may not necessarily may not achieve justice. So altogether, the TRC seems to be a good first step in that it acknowledges colonial legacies and aims for institutional transformation. However, the commission has a lot of room to grow. Firstly, the goal of reconciliation may not achieve justice because it does not necessarily question or disrupt the current settler colonial system. Still, I think the commission can be helpful in improving the lives of Indigenous people if it is able to manifest its recommendations into concrete change at the individual and interpersonal level. A better, a stronger bottom-up approach could help this process. And as usual, at the end of every episode, we give our listeners one call to action. For today's episode, I'd like all of you to go to the TRC archives and look at at least one statement or video. A link to the TRC archives will also be included in this week's newsletter. Thank you so much for tuning in.